For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, why a woman from Russia decided to spend her quarantine vacation at a monastery in Nepal. Learn some facts about murder hornets from the King of Sting, that's entomologist Justin Schmidt. A Muslim-American surgeon shares some insight into what observing the holy month of Ramadan means during the pandemic. And words of hope from a woman who is also witnessing the pandemic on the front lines while sharing concern for her extended family in Guatemala and the Dominican Republic. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. At the beginning of this week, the South Asian nation of Nepal officially had only 121 cases of the coronavirus, with no reported deaths. The country has been on strict lockdown since the middle of March. Katya Demitkova, a teacher from Russia, was among a number of international tourists who found themselves stuck in Nepal at the beginning of the pandemic. She chose not to get on the evacuation flights that were offered by Russia, preferring to weather the quarantine in a Buddhist monastery near Kathmandu, where she now teaches English to the boys who live there. Here is Elisa Ivanitskaya with the story. An avid world traveler, Katya speaks Russian, German, and a little bit of Nepali. She enjoys documenting her adventures with photos and videos on Instagram. In one of the videos from Nepal, she shows boys in the Buddhist monastery cheerfully playing while washing the floors. In another, they are laughing while digging canals. Initially, I came here to go trekking in Himalaya mountains, and I arrived in Kathmandu on the 13th of March, and on the 14th of March, they have suspended all visas on arrival, so I was kind of the last person to sneak in the country, and then they have banned all the international flights, and right now, the airport is completely closed, and no one can get in, and no one can get out. That's why I'm here. Katya practices Buddhism, and two years ago, she volunteered to be an English teacher in a monastery in India. Now, in Nepal, she is living in a monastery near the capital, Kathmandu. After they discovered the second case, they immediately uh, locked down the whole country, and uh, they have uh, asked everyone to stay at home and not to go anywhere. I think that government is just not sure that if there is some widespread outbreak of the virus, that they will be able to manage it well, because there are not many hospitals and the quality of medicine is not very high. So I think this is just the mixture of fear and uh, attempts to protect the population. Federico, a tourist and fellow Buddhist from Guatemala, also teaches children English. He has become quarantine friends with Kata. The monastery here in Sharminub is quite big. They have 120 kids, 
which is a lot. So it's like the whole crowd of uh, small monks running around you. And uh, maybe about uh, 15 or 20 monks. Before the lockdown, we uh, also had some people coming from the valley, from Kathmandu, to teach kids Nepali and English. Uh, but since the lockdown, they haven't been coming anymore. So this is uh, why we came in so handy for the monastery, because now we have overtaken on all the English classes and uh, helping out the kids not to get bored. The monastery is overcrowded. Katya says social distancing is not an option. Instead, the monastery cut itself off from the outside world. There are no conditions for self-isolation here because kids live uh, in big rooms altogether. After the earthquake in Nepal, they have given half of the monastery to another uh, group of monks from Swayambu Stupa. So kids even sleep two people in one bed. But the life inside the monastery hasn't changed much. The only difference is that no one now goes outside. The only person who goes outside is the food manager who is... uh, responsible for food supplies. Life in the monastery follows a schedule. Meals, prayers, and of course studies. What you should know when we are talking about Buddhist education is that it's very different from education in a public school. The only subjects they are studying are the languages. So usually it's Tibetan language, uh, the local language of the country they are in, and the third language is English, because uh, somehow they want to translate Buddhist teachings in the future into English. So they don't have any other subjects like biology or chemistry or social science. When I was in India, I bought a world map and I was showing them the countries and the continents because they didn't know anything about it. So I said that I'm from Russia, and Russia is here, and this is a big, very big country, and here is India, and we are here, but there is uh, the whole other world around us, and many other countries to know about. There is also enough free time to play soccer, which in Nepal is called football. <laughs> Kids spend their free time playing football on the field. Once they invited us uh, for a big match between the fourth and the fifth grades, I asked what was so special about this one. Because every weekend they play, and uh, the kids said that uh, this is an official match. And official match means (laughs) uh, that they are actually going to play for money. How do you get money? And uh, they said that uh, we actually have some weekly allowance, which is uh, 100 rupees, about one and a half dollars probably. So uh, to make this uh, prize fund, they uh, chip in uh, 50 rupees each. And uh, then the winning team gets it all. So you can actually double your uh, investments if you play football great. Despite being quick to acknowledge the dangers of COVID-19, Nepal, like many other countries, is now preparing to ease the lockdown. There are rumors that the government will divide the country in yellow zones, green zones and red zones. And that uh, Kathmandu is going to be yellow zone, which means that uh, lockdown will still be there, but uh, we will be able to go out from time to time, not very far. Katya Dimitkova could have flown home to Russia at the end of April, but she chose to stay. I'm very happy about my 
a way of self-isolation here, because as I said, if the life of the monastery hasn't changed much, and we still have um, the big building of the monastery, we still have the territory where we can walk, and uh, kids can play, and uh, we even have a garden here, and um, I'm not alone. I have my Guatemalan friend, I have 120 kids, and I have uh, some monks to talk to, and I also can do something meaningful here and uh, not be sad because the lockdown uh, and coronavirus prevents me from doing what I like. For Arizona Spotlight, I am Alisa Ivanitskaya. You can find links to Katya's photos and videos from Nepal by visiting the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. I have long noticed that when insects get a lot of press coverage, it's never good news. Our need for distraction during the pandemic has perhaps helped some recent visitors from the Asian continent to become media darlings overnight. Murder hornets. Despite that name, they aren't really a threat to humans, but they are a deadly danger for insects we depend on, the much-beleaguered honeybee. I asked entomologist Justin O. Schmidt, the man known for allowing himself to be stung and bitten by more than 80 different insects for his book, The Sting of the Wild, to tell us more about these hornets and the honeybees who just can't seem to catch a break. No, we seem to cause them all kinds of trouble. We have the last about century, we keep bringing in more problems. They keep getting slammed by them. And it's kind of a sad thing. It's not intentional, but it just happens. When we talk about the murder hornets, that name, every time I say it, it just it sounds wrong. But perhaps the most beautiful thing about the murder hornet is their Latin name, Vespa mandarinia. Exactly. I, I prefer to actually call them just plain giant hornets or giant Asian hornets. The reason you don't really need the Asian in there is most hornets are in Asia anyway, and so it's kind of almost redundant. You can call it the mandarin hornet, or there's the subspecies that's in Japan, it's the same thing. Sometimes that's called the Japanese hornet, but it's all the same beast. Well, do we have any kind of clue or speculation about how they ended up on the North American continent? We have speculation, but no real clue or evidence. Speculation that, that I think is most likely is in this era of globalization, we have a lot of shipments to and from the Northwest and Asia, particularly in the case that they were first discovered in British Columbia and Vancouver Island. And British Columbia ships a lot of logging, raw logs over to Asia. And often they have bark and all kinds of detritus and debris with them. And the ships come back with all this debris and such still in the hold of the ship. So if there was a hornet or a couple of queens that were overwintering, and they'd like to overwinter in duff of that sort, bark and humic material, that would be just ideal for them as they're kind of cruising across the ocean, they're quite happy and content. They end up in a port and nice and sunny and warm and off they fly. That's one scenario of how they could have gotten here. What is it that makes them such a horrible threat to the honeybee population in North America? Hornets in general are actually bad news for honeybees. 
there's Valentina, which is an invasive hornet species, which is probably more of a risk, actually, than, than the giant hornet. But that hasn't gotten to the U.S. That's gotten into Europe, Western Europe, and it's causing a lot of trouble. It also attacks honeybees. And we have a, a European hornet in the East Coast, Vespa crabro, which is also a, an import from middle of the 1800s. And that one sometimes attacks bees, too. The difference with a giant hornet is it's so much bigger and so much more effective at dispatching honeybees. Let me ask you, uh, Justin, how would you rate the aggressiveness of the hornet towards humans? It's actually quite low. That's the surprising thing to most people, that these hornets are not particularly aggressive to us. There are some hornets that are a lot more so, but this species is more of an intimidating game that it plays. It'll, it's, it's huge. It's not very agile, so, so it's kind of clumsy. And in addition, they have this aposmatic, in other words, warning, snapping of their jaws. They go snap, snap, snap. You can hear this several feet away. I was five or ten feet away, and the students I was working with were three or four times further away, and we could all hear this snapping. And you know, that really gets in your craw. It just gets under your skin, and you say, I don't think I want to be here. <laughs> and so that's what they do. They mainly just try to chase you off. Everyone's going to want to know, have you ever taken a sting from one of these giant hornets? Well, I guess I'd have to say sadly, although I'm not really sure I mean it, the answer would be no. Because when I was working on them in 1980 in Japan, I hadn't actually developed the concept of the sting pain scale. So that wasn't really on my radar screen. What was on my radar screen was not getting stung. And so I took great precautions to make sure I wasn't. But that said, based on what we know of the chemistry and the size of the hornets compared to their close relatives, the yellow jackets, yellow jacket is the two on the pain scale out of four. So it's kind of in the middle, about like a honeybee. And because the hornet is a good 10 times bigger than the and the yellow jacket and the chemistry of the venom is essentially the same. You know, there's some differences, but by and large, it's similar. I would predict that it would be about 10 times more painful, which would translate into about a three, which is still nothing trivial. You don't want to get stung by anything a two or a three, and, you know, three is particularly nasty. So I'd recommend that you not go out and explore, oh, I wonder how much this hurts, grab. No, not a wise thing to do. Justin, do you want to remind our listeners that here in Arizona, luckily, we don't have to fear murder hornets? That's completely correct. They, their specialized habitat is they like forest, and they like a wet forest. They need a drink of water every day, or more often than that. And of course, in Arizona, outside of perhaps the White Mountains and far north, there really isn't any place that would be suitable. And even those places really don't have as nearly as much water. You compare the amount of availability of water in, say, Japan or much of Asia or British Columbia or Washington, water is you know, readily available, whereas in Arizona, we're mostly drier areas with very little water. We have very little forest, and what it is is often you know, not really lush rainforest. So I'd say there's zero chance that we'd ever have them here even if they do get established in the Northwest. 
My guest was Justin O. Schmidt, a U of A entomologist at the Southwestern Biological Institute. His most popular book is The Sting of the Wild, the story of the man who got stung for science, published by Johns Hopkins Press. You can find a longer version of this conversation on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. The holy month of Ramadan continues through May 23rd. During this time, devout Muslims around the world are fasting from dawn to dusk, concentrating on being thankful, being with family, and finding ways to help those who are less fortunate. The strong focus on ending each day in celebration with family and friends is difficult during the quarantine. Dr. Bilal Joseph is a professor of surgery and head of trauma at Banner University Medical Center. He's the son of Lebanese emigrants and a Muslim American who grew up in Toledo, Ohio. Next, Dr. Joseph, who has been observing Ramadan throughout his life, talks to me about how the holy month of 2020 has been different. The emergency surgery and trauma has actually uh, not changed at all in volume given the past few weeks with the COVID. People are still doing things to be injured, unfortunately, and there's been an increase in our domestic violence and gun violence. How many COVID cases have you seen over the last three months? We had a late hit in Arizona. Most of the COVID came in the last four weeks, I would say. Fortunately for us in Tucson, we, we weren't hit as bad as the rest of the country, uh, like New York or Detroit or Louisiana. But for the state, I think saw a few thousand cases, and 200 deaths total in all of Arizona. Do you normally take time off from work during Ramadan? You know, as a surgical uh, trainee and now a surgeon, it's been very difficult to take time off. The Muslim calendar or the Islamic calendar is based on the lunar month. So, you know, it's the new moon to the new moon, the 30-day duration. So there's not necessarily an exact day of when Ramadan starts and ends. We usually know within a few days. But I try my hardest to, you know, at least get what we call Eid, the last day of the month off to, to do that. But otherwise, I still work through the month. Is it difficult to keep up with your workload while you're fasting during the day? actually teaches us we should never put anyone in harm, including ourselves. So if I ever feel that I'm you know, not safe, I don't fast. But, you know, it's a mindset, to be honest with you. Uh, two years ago, when it was the midsummer, it was very difficult. Uh, this year has actually been surprisingly not as bad. Uh, we usually start our fast around 4.30 in the morning, and we can break our fast uh, somewhere around 7 in the evening. How does this year, um, honoring Ramadan during this time of quarantine and, and stay-at-home orders, how, how is this different? Now, Ramadan is a time uh, of not just you know fasting from food. It's about uh, feeding the poor, uh, giving the needy. And this year, you know, with the quarantine and, and the separation, it's been a little different in the sense that it's just more, it's me and my wife, basically, and our five-month-old son. And, you know, in Ramadan, one of the biggest blessings is to help uh, the needy during this month. And, and there's been so many more opportunities to know where that exists and to see people that normally wouldn't need help uh, to be able to help them as well. Is there any difficulty in getting the traditional foods that you would normally break fast with uh, during this month? Yeah, Muslims uh, practice uh, and eat what's called halal meat, like our kosher. Uh, this month has been fairly difficult to find halal meat on the shelves in a lot of the um, supermarkets or stores because of the shortage of meat. 
been almost like the chasing toilet paper scenario. You go from store to store trying to find the halal beef or chicken. Well, have you or your wife participated in any online gatherings? Are there Zoom meetings happening in among the Muslim community in Tucson? My family is from Toledo, Ohio. My wife's family is actually from Ottawa, Canada. They break their fast at 9 p.m., which is a three-hour time difference. So we've we usually call them right and see what they're eating and you know, get on the video Zoom for a little bit to see what all the foods and amazing things they're doing. But we have not had it together in Tucson. We've not done a, a Zoom. You know, we've shared walks with distance between us with us and other families. But as a healthcare worker, people don't realize how much even my wife, some of her friends won't see her this month just because, you know, they know I work at the hospital on the front line. So it's kind of like they're taking one extra step of safety. The neighbors go inside when I drive down the, drive down the neighborhood. But... <laughs> In learning about Ramadan in the past, I found the element of humility and lessons about being uh, humble to be a very interesting part of this time and of the Muslim faith. I guess there's no more humbling experience than what we're going through right now as a, as a community. You know, it's interesting. It, I totally agree. Even as healthcare workers, there's been a lot of support from many restaurants in the community that have donated food or just people, you know, putting signs, our Tucson Fire and Tucson Police did a drive. I mean, the appreciation for each other uh, and who we are and what we need and the needs of people has become front and center, which has just been a different culture than what we've been used to for the last few years. Yeah, both local mom-and-pop shops and commercial restaurants have donated uh, to the hospital. People have baked cookies for us. We've had a PPE uh, fundraising event where people brought in PPE for the hospital workers, and it's just been such a beautiful experience with the community. That's kind of the Ramadan thing, the spirit of Ramadan. It's just it's care for each other, it's kindness, it's you know cleanliness. I mean, all these things we practice, it's, it's funny, it's, it's part of this whole thing. Dr. Bilal Joseph is a professor of surgery and head of trauma at Banner University Medical Center. Thirty years ago, Patricia Barcelo Sanders, her sister and parents, were refugees from Guatemala. She told me she made promises to herself and to God that if they were able to escape the Civil War violence with their lives, she would use her life to help others. Today, Patricia has her own family in Tucson and works with patients at the University of Arizona Division of Trauma, Critical Care, Burns, and Emergency Surgery. She has seen the effects of the pandemic on the local community firsthand. She's also been keeping watch over how the global spread of the virus is impacting her extended family in Central America and the Caribbean. I know fear and death a little too well. Fear, death, and I go way back to my childhood. My name is Patricia Barcelo Sanders. I am from Guatemala. I fled Guatemala when I was a kid due to the Civil War. My family was being persecuted and many were tortured and killed by the Guatemalan government. I have lived in the U.S. for over 30 years now. I am married to Lorenzo Barcelo Sanders. Lorenzo came to the U.S. when he was a teen, living his dream of playing baseball in the minors and the major leagues. My husband is very passionate about watching the news, and his daily updates started in December about the COVID-19. He wondered out loud one morning while we were getting breakfast together, when will we see the first infected person here in the U.S.? I recall saying to him, we are one of the most powerful countries in the world. I think we got this. We need to be worried about Guatemala and the Dominican Republic. 
As numbers kept rising and hitting Europe and the U.S. hard, my very well-known fear started to kick in. This time, it was not a fear about guns and soldiers. It was a fear for my family, my peers, my friends against COVID-19. This time, every single human being on Earth was a target. There's a family in Taiwan who we adopted by friendship, who jumped into rescue mode for us. They insisted we wear masks, even though the CDC was telling us that there was no need to use them at that time. We got so many tips from them, from hand washing to disinfecting the gas pump handles to keeping our shoes out of the house. All the tips came in handy to pass down to our families in the U.S. and outside of the U.S. I asked myself, if I have this fear of living in a developed country, what would our families be feeling or thinking back in our home country, where medical care, education, and some of the very basic life necessities are a luxury? While us in the U.S. are on the more voluntary mode of wearing masks and staying indoors, both Guatemala and the Dominican Republic enforce that wearing a mask is obligatory and implemented a strict curfew and arrested and fined people not complying with those orders. Guatemala was issuing fines of up to $1,000 to people not wearing masks. Things were so differently handled, but the common denominator for all was staying healthy and alive. It was very confusing receiving so much information on so many different platforms. It was hard to believe anything. One day, you don't need to wear a mask. Another day, you do. Some states were closing while others were not. I think we lacked a unified commitment in our country and clear direction as to what to do. When looking away from the global view and looking at the home level of things, I see our healthcare teams united and working hard for us, and that gives me comfort and hope that we will overcome this. Our lives have been transformed, and we may be inconvenienced by all of these health and safety guidelines we are being asked to follow. Sadly, while we get to a better place in the world, many of us have lost loved ones to this virus, but these things remain. Our ability to adjust our ability to grow and move forward, our ability to unite and do the right things for humanity. This is what is going to make a difference around the world. This is what's going to get us to a better place. That essay was by Patricia Barcelo Sanders, a program coordinator in the UA Division of Trauma, Critical Care, Burns, and Emergency Surgery. While she was writing these words of hope, a member of her husband's family died from coronavirus in the Dominican Republic. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. The show originates from the AZPM radio studios. AZPM's interim news director is Duncan Moon. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The assistant producer is Elisa Ivanitskaya. I'm producer and host, Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.